Father in heaven, now as we come to the scripture, I pray that the line we just sang would be true, that we weren't just blowing smoke. So I will give my life, my all to love and follow him. Father, I pray that none of us gives that impression unless that is true. I pray now that as we open the scripture that you would be with us, that you'd help us to see, to listen, to understand, to know you, Jesus. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn, please, to Acts in chapter 4, please. Acts chapter 4, I want to read verses 32, begin with verse 32 and read through uh, chapter 5 and verse 11. Just so you'll know, I know that as you hear this passage, you'll think, this is not a Mother's Day text. And and you're right, uh, I don't preach... Hallmark holiday sermons, though, bless mothers. And my only word, and you'll see it, is don't be like Sapphira. So, Acts in chapter 4, please. In verse 32. Hear the word of God. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of these, any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church, and upon all who heard of these things. Now, it's a great contrast between the end of chapter 4 
and what we read in chapter 5. There's a great contrast between what the church is described as being from verses 32 to 37 in chapter 4, this ideal church, this church that everyone would be a part of. And then we see in these opening verses of chapter 5 what has crept into this ideal church and how that has happened and how God dealt with it. Because we see at the end of chapter 4 this ideal church, this, this church where uh, Luke writes, were of one heart and soul. Uh, no doubt it means that they had the same understanding of who God was, the same understanding of the work of Christ, the same understanding of the presence of the Holy Spirit around, about them, the, the same understanding of who they were as believers, as followers of Christ, and what they were to do. They, they understood that. No doubt they loved God. No doubt they loved God the Father for their heritage, for having chosen them, for having sent Jesus to be the propitiation. Rick talked last Sunday about propitiation, about the propitiation for their sins. That is, that that Christ died, as Ezekiel put it, for their iniquity, died so that the wrath of God, the judgment of God would be satisfied, would be extinguished, extinguished, would be paid. No doubt thankful for that. No doubt thankful for the promise he had given to them of the Holy Spirit. No doubt they loved Jesus. They loved him for coming. They loved him for dying. They loved him for rising for their justification. They loved him because he was the very one who has ascended and is the Lord and is looking after all things for their sake. This very one who is their advocate this very one who is their intercessor in heaven, always for them. This one who will one day return and receive them to himself and make all things right. No doubt they loved the Holy Spirit, this very one who was present with them, this very one who had given them new life, this very one who, as Ezekiel put it, took out their heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, this very one who was, at that very moment, was causing them to walk in the very ways of God, the statutes of God, this very one who is sanctifying them, this very one who is making them holy, this very one who is present with them, supplying all their needs. They loved God. And they found themselves to be of one heart and one soul. And they loved each other. In fact, we see evidence of that here. It says in verse 32, that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything Uh, in common. And then in verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And thus, thus we see that there was a great love for each other, so much so that they didn't consider their own belongings as their own. If there was a need and someone was able to meet that need, they did whatever it took in order to meet that need. There was great love for each other. I don't think there's anybody who wouldn't want to be a part of that kind of community, that kind of church. One mind, one soul, this great unity together in love for God and purpose, in love for each other. And then the blessing of God, verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. In other words, there was great power in the teaching and the lives of the apostles and this whole community. So much so that people said, Jesus really is alive. And that was the very grace of God. Now, it seems to be Luke's purpose, though, to very particularly tell us about this love that they had for each other. 
because he's setting something up here. And so he tells us about the selling of property and, 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 and meeting of needs. And now, just as an aside, it's, it's very true that they did hold things in their understanding in common, but this wasn't some sort of precursor to a communist sort of society. They held their own property. Their property was their own, and, and, and this was a voluntary act. This isn't something that everybody had to do. As soon as you joined the church, you didn't have to turn your property over to the disciples and to the apostles of Jesus. Uh, they owned things, and when they determined on their own, hopefully by the moving of the Holy Spirit, that they were to sell their property and give it, they could do that. And they could give whatever portion of that that they wanted to. This was all a voluntary act. This wasn't something that was made law uh, in the church. But they did that. And there was this one particular person named Barnabas. We'll see him throughout our study of the book of Acts. But this man Barnabas, uh, who was a great encourager, in fact, that's his nickname, Barnabas. His real name was Joseph. And they get this nickname, Barnabas, which meant son of encouragement, because he would give. And in his giving, he encouraged others. So he sold his property, gave all of the money to the apostles, said, here, distribute it to the poor. And then chapter 5 begins, at least in the version I read, with the word but. If you have the NIV, it's the word now. It really means the same. It's, it's saying, now there's something new here, a new twist here. And it's more explicit here in the ESV that says, but this, however this, juxtaposed, same period of time, this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. And, and you see what happens to them. They're, they're killed, really. They die. And it isn't so much that Peter's words was startling so that Ananias and Sapphira would, would, would die of shock. Perhaps that was the secondary cause. But the primary cause of their death was God. The primary cause of their death was God because this was a judgment against them. The whole context screams that to us, that they had lied to the church. They had lied to the Holy Spirit. Therefore, they had lied to God. And this was judgment upon them. And this really happened. This isn't just a story. It's just a myth. It's just something put in there by Luke for effect. If ever the movie was made, this would really be cool. It wasn't that at all. This really happened. People that other people in the church knew one day had been worshiping with them. The next day were being carried out dead. You you wonder why? I mean, why was this the case? I mean, they seemed to do everything Barnabas had done. I mean, they had a piece of property. Barnabas had a piece of property. They sold their property. Barnabas sold his property. They brought money to the church. Barnabas brought money to the church. Uh, but there was something here that Peter knew, either by way of revelation by the Holy Spirit, which we wouldn't be surprised given how Peter's had been acting so far. But it could have been maybe he had some inside information. Maybe somebody knew and provided him this information. We simply don't know how he got the information. That's really not the point. But the point that he, he knew, and so he was able to question Ananias as Ananias came in. Uh, notice how it's put. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, the fact that he brought only part of it really isn't the issue. He had every right to bring only part of it. Notice how uh, Peter uh, talks to him in... in um, In verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, 
Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? In other words, it was yours, Ananias. Nobody made you sell it. Nobody uh, came to you and said, you need to sell this property. It was yours. It was completely under your discretion. It was completely yours. And then he goes on to say, and after it was sold, uh, was it not at your disposal? In other words, the proceeds. Weren't the proceeds at your disposal? You could do whatever you wanted with the money you got from the sale of the land. That wasn't it at all. But there was some kind of lying going on here. And, and the lying must have been in relation to what they sold the property for and what they said they were going to give. You get the impression that they were trying to be like Barnabas. That they were trying to say, uh, we sold our property for $50,000 and we're therefore going to give $50,000 to the church. We're going to give it all. That that was what they had said. But the truth of the matter is they sold it for 50 and only gave 40 or sold it for 50 and only gave 49 or sold it for 50 and only gave 20. Whatever it was, that there was a discrepancy there, that they had lied in terms of what they had promised to give of it. You get the impression then that they were trying to, to get the kudos that they thought Barnabas had gotten and they were trying to get it for themselves without really sincerely having the same motivation that Barnabas himself had. And so the way that Peter puts it, he says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. You've lied to God. And at that point in time, Barnabas breathed his last. Then his wife Sapphira comes in three hours later, and and Peter questions her. Uh, He says, verse 7, after an interval of about three hours... His wife came in not knowing what had happened. Uh, And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? In other words, how is it that you're putting God to the test? That you're standing right before God and you're telling a lie. How can you do that? Don't you know that God sees Don't you know that God cares how we act? Don't we know that God is here and can act? Don't you know that God is the ultimate judge of everything? Don't you know that? So how can you you stand there, not just before us, but before God, and say these kinds of things? And notice again what happens to her. Peter said, Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husbands are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And then the men came in and carried her out as well. All right. Now, what do we learn from this? I find it fascinating in the book of Acts that Luke attempts to cover about 30 years, give or take, of church history in about 30 pages. So you know that he's going to be pretty selective. You know that he's going to only include those things which we really need to hear. Now, clearly, it's the Holy Spirit who's at work here, so we trust it. Trust his judgment. But, but, but why this particular incident? Why is this, why is this here? What are we supposed to hear from this? What are we supposed to learn from this? What are we just supposed to sit up and take notice about with this particular uh, incident? I think this first. We see that in the context of the life of the church, in the context of a community of believers, there's a tremendous spiritual battle 
that's going on that we need to be aware of. We can't see it because we can't see spiritual things because it's spirit. It's out there. We can't see it with our eyes. But what we're to know is that's really happening. It's really going on. That this is a manifestation of what we read really throughout the whole book of Revelation. It's, it's laid out for us uh, in Revelation chapter 12, rather for Revelation, explicitly. Turn there just for a second. Let me read this chapter. It's easy. You'll be able to pick this up. We don't have to do any great, uh, don't need any charts for this. We don't need any uh, television shows. I don't need to poof up my hair <laughs> to let you know what this means. It's fairly easy. But if you're reading through the book of Revelation, the first 11 chapters lay out uh, certain things, and then chapter 12 kind of goes behind the scenes and says, now this is why all that's happening. Uh, and then from then on, at least for a while, uh, you get some behind-the-scenes stuff. And so this is written in apocalyptic language, as we might say. This is written in figurative kind of language, but I think it's fairly clear to follow. Verse 1, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before this woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she's to be nourished for 1260 days. Don't get caught up in all the little details, but, but I think you see the, the picture. You've got Satan, and you've got this woman, and you've got the birth of this child who would be, answered every question, Jesus. Uh, you would see the conflict but you would see in just very, very, very telegraphic kind of language. Oops, he's caught up into heaven. So the ascension, and there he is. Verse 7. Now war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient, ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He, John doesn't want us to miss that point, so he says, okay, just in case you haven't been following this along, this is Satan. Um, you remember him from Genesis chapter 3 and all through the scripture. Uh, verse 10, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have, has co have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Testimony, for they loved not their lives unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in, in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And so whatever else that means, you get the sense that Satan's really ticked. He's really mad at what has taken place, because the Christ has come and conquered. And he sees even the followers of the Christ, sees the followers of Jesus overcoming him, that is overcoming the evil one, by the word of this testimony that Jesus has come, that he's triumphed over Satan, and they have not loved their lives unto death, meaning that they're willing to be killed for this information. They're willing to be killed for this belief. And he can't even stop them by killing them. Then verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, 
He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. For the woman was given uh, two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came uh, to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And the picture there is this conflict, this spiritual battle between Satan and the offspring of the woman, the offspring of this son, us, the church. And that's what we find here. We find this spiritual battle. And as Luke opens up to us the history of the church, the book of Acts, we see this spiritual battle taking place page after page. And you might remember, as the book of Acts opens, it's with Jesus before his ascension. And he's telling his disciples that they're to wait in Jerusalem so that they can receive power from the Holy Spirit. And, and that all happens. And there's this great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 men, the scriptures say, uh, say, are saved, that is, are converted by the very work of the Holy Spirit. And then, and then things begin to progress. Uh, and then uh, Peter and John see this man who's lame and they, they lift him up in the name of Jesus and he's able to walk. And that gets the attention of Satan because we see that the religious leaders come against the disciples of Jesus to try to keep them from speaking about Jesus. They can no longer do things. They can no longer say things in the name of Jesus. At least that's the rule that's placed before them. And so we see this preliminary work, this battle taking place. But, but that doesn't stop them. They continue on. Now, we'll see later that that approach of Satan is picked up, that, that persecution is picked up, and it's going to get more fierce. But now it seems that he's going to come against the church in its purity. Because here you have the ideal church. Here you have a church that's loving each other, just as Jesus has said it should. And we see the very power of God there. Because there's a relationship between the manifestation of the power of God through a church and the unity and love that that church expresses. That is, when a church is unified in the truth of God, when a church loves God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when a church loves each other and is willing to sacrifice for the well-being of the others there, there is great power. That is a great witness to the fact that Jesus is alive and that he's governing all things for the sake of his church. That's the powerful witness. Remember, Jesus said, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you love each other. Therefore, a new commandment I give to you that you'd love one another as I've loved you. And so when that takes place, you see, then it shouts, that church, that we belong to Jesus, that Jesus really is alive, that Jesus really is Lord in Christ, that there really is forgiveness of sins in him. So all of that is shouted by a church that loves that way, and that gets the attention of this Satan, this evil one, the one who's coming against the church to squelch it and to stop it. That, that, that brings the spiritual battle to the fore so that we can actually see it. Now we see it 
externally as persecution comes against the church. And now we see Satan try to even infiltrate in the midst of the church because Ananias and Sapphira, no doubt, were members in good standing of the church in Jerusalem. However it is that they measured that, however it is that they went through their new member stuff, however it is that they joined people together with them, Ananias and Sapphira were part of that. They were known to Peter. They would have known what Barnabas had done. People knew them. And the scripture says that Satan filled their hearts. Now it's interesting because he filled their hearts with lies. Interesting because Satan is the father of lies. He's, he's the very originator of lies. And so when he, when he comes around, his characteristic is to bring lying. And, and, and there's a certain sense in which he brings in their lives what we call hypocrisy. We call play acting. We say looking one way, but being another on the inside. In fact, this little uh, word in Greek that we translate hypocrisy or hypocrite uh, really is a word that we would use in our common language for, for an actor, someone who acts in a movie, acts in a play. If you were an actor in ancient Greece and you filled out your W-2 form where it said occupation, you would write hypocrite. And you'd be hoping that you would get an award called best supporting hypocrite or best female hypocrite in a comedy. You know, I mean, that, that, that sort of... That, and, and so in that context... Uh, being an actor is a good thing if, if that's your occupation and everybody knows that's what you're doing. But hypocrisy is not a good thing in the context of a family, in the context of a community of people, because it's living a lie. It's saying, I'm acting one way, but my heart is really different. And so if you just see my actions, you will never really know me, because I'm really different on the inside. And hypocrisy in the context of the life of the church suggests that you have somebody who's trying to look spiritual, look like they love God, look like they trust him, look like they're trying to honor him, when in fact they're not. Jesus had very harsh words for a group of people in his day called Pharisees. To him, they were uh, the poster children for hypocrisy, for hypocrites. Of them, he would say, quoting the prophet Isaiah, uh, you honor me with your lips. That is, you speak about me in ways that honor me, but your hearts really are far from me. All right? Uh, as opposed to that little one who's saying, I just don't want to be here. And that's just true. That's not, that's, that's not hypocrisy. Okay? That's honesty. That's truth. All right? That's, that's real saying you know, the rest, some of the rest of you are sitting here with smiles on your faces, and that's what's going on in the inside. Uh, that's hypocrisy, all right? I just want you to know that, so be careful. Uh, you might not make it to your car. Now, um, got you now, don't I? Right? Okay? But you see, that's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, hypocrisy. Is, 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 is putting on a good face when on the inside it's just not there. Now, this is different than, than not being able to live out everything that we believe. That isn't necessarily hypocrisy. I mean, the truth is, 
We all know more than we do. The truth is we, we know right and wrong. We know what God calls us to and we know what he calls us and commands us away from. And not being able to live up to that perfectly is not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is saying I'm living up to it when I'm not. Hypocrisy is saying this is really in my heart when it really isn't in your heart. So Jesus would say to these Pharisees, you know, when you pray, when you do your acts of righteousness and you pray and it looks like what you're doing is really calling out to God, you're really not. You're just doing this so that other people will look at you and say, aren't they really spiritual? They're really the spiritual leaders of our community. Look how great those men are. And he says, and and, and when you give, it gives the appearance that you care about the poor, but you really don't. Because when you give, you're clanging your money in the, in the, in the bowl in such a way that it's calling attention to, to yourself so that people can look at you and go, wow, look at them giving. They must really care about the poor. And you don't. It's just an investment in your own personal honor. And when you fast, uh, you, 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 you cover your face with your hair with ashes and, and you look very ashen yourself so that when you're walking around people will go oh look at them they're fasting what spiritual people they must be but you're not really because you're putting on the show so that people will look at you and say oh look at you you're a really spiritual person I mean, the way that I uh, hide my fasting of course is I eat <laughs> nobody ever nobody ever accuses me therefore look at him he's got a burger he's not fasting oh yeah on the inside um <laughs> And so they, they, they don't practice what they preach, Jesus says to them. They're, they're concerned about the minutia, but, but yet they, they, let, they let the important things like justice and mercy and, and faithfulness go by the wayside, while they're nitpicking about this. Jesus would say of them that you, you strain out gnats from your drink, but you swallow camels, that the outside of the cup is clean, but the inside of the cup is dirty, he says to them. You're really whitewashed tombs. The outside looks very good, but the inside is filled with dead men's bones. That's hypocrisy. And that's what was true with Ananias and Sapphira. They were trying to get a nickname. They were trying to be known as givers. They were trying to be known as carers. They were trying to be known as spiritual righteous people. They wanted to be looked up by others as they perceived Barnabas was. And of course, Barnabas probably could give a rip. Barnabas probably didn't care. If you'd tell him that his name got written in a book, he'd say, oh, that's not why I gave. I just wanted to help those people. But, but these Ananias and Sapphira, ah, oh, no, their hearts were very different. And you see, the great danger of hypocrisy, the great danger of hypocrisy in the life of a community is that it means that people are living a lie. Thus, they can never become known. It's always superficial. Always wrong impressions. Always trying to make yourself look better than you really are. And so falsehood like that destroys community. It destroys fellowship. And not only that, it creates a judgmentalism. Because really, all that matters is what's on the external, what's on the outside. And everybody's trying to look better than everybody else. And so appearance is everything. And therefore it creates this judgmentalism. It compares, you don't look as good as I look. 
And I'm going to do this so that I can look even better than you. And so Jesus would have to say, listen, what happens in the context of hypocrisy is that people who have this huge log in their own eye are trying to take out the speck in somebody else's eye. That is, you just can't see who you really are. After a while, the deception gets so great that you miss entirely that your heart is wrong because your actions seem so right. And if that's the case, it will destroy a community, especially a community called the church, which is based on truth and what is real. Have you ever tried to lie to God? You you have, so if you're thinking, well, let me answer that one for you. (laughs) Have you ever tried to hide something from God? And of course the answer is is, is sort of yes, you know, maybe not consciously, maybe you didn't say, well, let me sneak around the corner over here and do this because God can't see me. But there's some sense of disconnect, isn't there? When we sin, there's a sense of disconnect. Because we're, we're hiding this, we're lying really to God. And, and in order to do that, in order to lie or to hide from God, we have to make some assumptions about him, some rather foolish assumptions about him. For instance, we have to assume that he can't see. One of the most ironically hilarious passages, if it weren't so devastating in the Bible, is after Adam and Eve sinned and Adam tries to hide from God. Now, we understand why he did that. We understand the impulse of that. We understand the instinct of that. But isn't it rather rather silly? I mean, minimally, God made the garden. So so he had a knowledge of all the nooks and crannies. So it was only a matter of time before God got around to him. But, But this is God, right? The omniscient one, the one who sees all. And then you have to make, we have to make the assumption that, that even if God can see, for me to hide something from him, it must mean that he doesn't really care. I mean, maybe he can see it, but he just doesn't care. Well, there they go again. But he just doesn't care. But we know that isn't true at all about God. He cares passionately about everything. And he mostly cares passionately, that is, he cares supremely passionately for that which is righteous. Supremely passionately for that which reflects him, for that which is his glory. And so we know that he can't just simply see and overlook, see and not care. And then we have to make this assumption if we're going to try to hide or lie to God, that in fact, even if he does see and even if he does care, it must mean that he can't act. I mean, because if, if you know somebody sees you and you know somebody cares about it, you know they can't really do anything about it, then it really doesn't keep you from hiding it, from lying. But we know that God can really act because he's omnipotent. That's why the scripture says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Because it's foolish to think about God like that, that he can't see, that he doesn't care, that he can't act. It's just foolish. The scripture doesn't say the stupid say in their heart, there is no God. Because they're brilliant people who are in a biblical way foolish because they don't realize God sees. They don't realize God cares. They're unable to acknowledge the fact that God acts righteously and morally. 
Ananias and Sapphira missed that. They acted as if God couldn't see. They acted as if God didn't care. They acted as if God couldn't act. But he did see. He did care. And he did act. And he judged. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this passage, I do honestly think, if that was true for them, how am I going to make it to my car? Right? I mean, just very honestly. I mean, I mean the truth of the matter is, we, we, we've all lied to God. We've all hidden things from him. We've all put on airs. We've all said I'm better than I really am. We've all done that in various kinds, kinds of ways. Uh, there are times in the course of marriage when we may stand in church or may give the appearance that we believe in the sanctity of marriage, but divorce is going through our head all the time. I want out. I want out. And yet we live in that lie. There are times when we may give the impression of, of, of caring for others by the way that we give or maybe the cards that we send or the meals that we take. But the truth of the matter is we're just doing that out of obligation. truth of the matter is we're just doing that so that other people will pat us on the back. And we know that takes place within us, among us, various times. We know we do things in a perfunctory manner, in a manner of duty. Uh, and we don't mind the accolades and the pats on the back. In fact, that motivates us sometimes more than really helping the other person. And we just know that. We see that hypocrisy, if you will, in us. We may give the impression that we're, we're for sexual purity and that our minds are filled with lust. You know your own hypocrisy. You know what to fill in in that particular gap, that particular question. And we look at Ananias and Sapphira and we really believe this is a real story. We really believe it's a real incident. We really believe it took place. We really believe that's how God views these, these things. And so the question is, how are we going to make it to our car? How are we going to live out in the context of a community? I mean, could you imagine if you were putting your offering in the box this morning and the person in front of you put theirs in and died? Who would be the next one? Or on a communion Sunday, if somebody in line ahead of you took a piece of bread, dipped it in the cup, ate it, and died, who would be the next one to dip? It would give us pause, wouldn't it? But I think this, I think this is the way we make it to our cars. I think this is the way we maintain community, and that is that the rule of our community, the understanding, the attitude of our community, is one that embraces confession. It's a community that embraces confession. The word confess simply means to agree with, to speak after another. And you see, we need to be in a confessional community. And that doesn't mean that every day you stand up and you tell everybody your sins and all of that. If it affects them, you do. If it's affected them, you do. But we need to keep this confession between us and God very, very much alive and very, very honest to be checking our hearts and not allow this, this sort of the hardness to, to form over us. And when we find ourselves, as God reveals to us, as we see it in others, as we see it in ourselves, this kind of hypocrisy slipping in and we think, oh, I'm doing this. I'm better than I really am. We need to confess our sin to God openly and honestly and to lay these things out, to be as sensitive to them as he is. 
And when other people sin, we shouldn't act particularly surprised. I mean, one of the reasons, this is one of the reasons, I love the church, is because it's a community of people where you agree at the onslaught in the very beginning, you announce to everybody that you're a sinner, that the best you can merit on your own is the condemnation of God. And then you ask the rest of the people to take you in. (laughs) I mean, what other organization allows you to come in and says, I'm pretty much a, well, I'm a failure. Morally, intellectually, spiritually, every way you can imagine, I've missed it entirely. Could I please join with you? And we make you a member in good standing. We say, yes, of course. Because if you said, I've got it all together, we'd have to say, no, I'm sorry. Not only would you spoil it for the rest of us, but that just isn't our understanding of life and who we are. Whereas you get the impression that Ananias and Sapphira, deep in their hearts, believed that they were good enough. Believed that in their doing of selling and giving, it would promote them in some way to be in good standing in that community. And it's just not like that. And so you see, when one of us sins, we shouldn't turn up our noses and we shouldn't say, how could they? We know exactly how they could. In fact, we could even instruct them on how they could have done it better. Right? If we're really honest about this. People come into my office and say, boy, I'm really ashamed to tell you this. And and I understand what you're saying and I'm ashamed of my sin as well. But it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't startle me. It's, It's life. I have no expectation of your innate holiness. This is the community in which we live, a community of honesty. Now again, I don't believe that that means that every morning when you get up, you've got to call everybody and tell everybody all your sins. We pretty much know them uh, without you telling us. Certainly if your sin has affected another person, you need to tell them very honestly about that. But we need to keep this line of confession between us and God all the time. Martin Luther, his first thesis that he pounded up on the doors of Wittenberg went something like this. When Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, calls us to follow him, he calls us to a life of repentance, a constant growing awareness of our own sin, our own need, and a constant going back to God and saying, I'm sorry, and a constant going back to God saying, please help me. And that if goodness comes from any of us, we know where that goodness originated. It originated in God. And so we give thanks to him. If I ever do anything that's helpful, that's really helpful, give thanks to God. If you do things that are helpful, give thanks to God because that's, his, that's the evidence that Jesus is alive. That's the evidence that Jesus is with us. That's the evidence that the Holy Spirit is here among us and around us. Don't you know that after this particular event, that when someone would say, I'm a follower of Jesus, it meant so much more. Because we realized how serious God takes us being his. Honestly, his. Honestly for his glory. So much so that after these events with Ananias and Sapphira, the scripture says, and great fear came upon all those who heard it. Duh, right? 
In fact, so much so that later, a verse I didn't read in chapter 5, verse 13 says, and none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Don't you know that the people on the outside are looking and saying, I don't know. That's a pretty scary group. People die there. That fear came upon them. And there's certainly a fear of being afraid. But there's this, I don't know how else to put it, this hush before God, this quietness before God, this sense before God that I know you love me. You are my heavenly father. You have accepted me. You have received me. But you're still God. And so I I come humbly before you. I come quietly before you. I come submitting to you. And here I am, honest before you. The way that we live in the context of community, in the context of church, is to live honestly. God knows. And it's really silly for us to pretend that he doesn't. It's really silly for us to pretend that we can make ourselves look so good that others among us will think we're that great. We really know. We're together as a community of God's confessing, repenting, accepting people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me, for us, that none of us would think ourselves as being all that But we'd realize that whatever we are, you have made us. And that we would look to you and give thanks to you. Father, I pray for a spirit of honesty among us. That we might have a great sense of unity of heart and soul. That we might love you and love each other. And that your power may be manifested among us. And that that power would be the result of great grace. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. Uh, The response uh, to our benediction this morning is we will fear the Lord. Hallelujah. Now that's an interesting juxtaposition even as I wrote that. I thought I should write, we we will fear the Lord. Whoa. (laughs) Right? Uh, but no, it's hallelujah. It's, it's, this is God. And so to fear him is right and good. Not fear only in the sense of terror. If there's something to be terrified about, him, feel it. But this fear in the sense of he's God. He knows it all. He sees it all. And I submit myself to him. We will fear the Lord. And hallelujah means praise him. Praise be to God. Please receive this as God's benediction, not to him. He was able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through his power that's at work within us to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, we will fear the Lord. Hallelujah.